You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic, can't you tell? Look your, at me. Your birthday is coming up. It's on Friday. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure everybody knew that, because I know you're excited about it. Probably yeah. want everybody on Twitter and Facebook... Everyone who has your personal email to make sure that they wish you a happy birthday. MySpace, Friendster, Friendster. <laughs> I know that you're grinder. I know that you're big on that. Look, man, I'm not a big birthday guy. Okay, I know, and that's the reason that I take it upon myself every year to make sure that everybody knows that your birthday is coming up. Well, twenty nine this year, <laughs> twenty nine all over again. I'm, I'll be thirty four. Uh, I would ask that uh, in lieu of a gift, you just give me cash. Just open up your wallet right now and give me whatever cash is in there. Neither of those things are going to happen, but I know that if I get up and go to the bathroom, you will probably go through my wallet and take all my cash anyway. Don't worry, I'll leave that old-ass condom that you got in there. <laughs> You're like a truck stop hooker, just going through my wallet every time I Man, get up to go to the bathroom. Can't, can't we have like one day where I come over to your house and you don't compare me to a truck stop hooker? It fits. What can I say? Well, at least you're consistent. Playoff beard is coming in nice, by the way. Thank you. Thank it's you very much. I, I think I'm good. Uh, I talked to Johnny Hendricks once about how to get past the, the part of the beard phase that I always wimp out on and shave. Uh, and he gave me a lot of sound advice. Uh, Did he, what, what, what would you say is, was Johnny Hendricks's top beard tip? Well, for one thing, he advocates uh, a lot of lotion application and really massaging it in there, getting it in there to the skin. Okay. And, and that curbs itching, I would assume? Yeah. And that when it does itch, you don't go down the road of, of scratching it because once you start, there's no stopping. Okay, I guess he says I... when it gets a little longer, one of the things he does in lieu of scratching it that actually feels really good is to comb it. Really? Yeah. Just sitting around combing your beard. Me and Johnny Hendricks, living the dream. Anyway, this this week's co-main event podcast, as usual, comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, UFC 166 proved to be that rare intersection between hype, raised expectations, and awesome fights that reminds us all why we dedicate such a large portion of our lives to watching this sport on TV. And in round number two, but seriously, how worried should we be about guys like Diego Sanchez and Junior Dos Santos, especially when the ringside doctors in the state of Texas appear to borrow their interpretation of the Hippocratic Oath from Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies. (laughs) It's my Ivan Drago. That's pretty terrible, actually. That's probably the first time I've ever done it. Well, maybe a little bit of rehearsal would have been in order here. Yeah, right. And in round number three, barring another last-minute game of musical chairs, Mark Munoz will take on Lyoto Machida this weekend at Ultimate Fight. Oh, wait a second. This shit is on Fox Sports 2? Well, fuck it. Nobody's going to watch it then. I still All refer that, to it as Fuel plus, TV. are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Kent 
Carter. He writes, you've just taken a job in Bellator's PR department. Oh, oh no. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Tragedy for us. Wow. So uh, hard times then. Your job is to try and salvage public perception surrounding Bellator's upcoming pay-per-view with the hope of ultimately increasing the buy rate. How would you sell it? Pitch me and try to get me to part with my $30. Right now, I'm debating if it's even worth my time to illegally stream it. Wow. Oh, ouch. ouch. Come on, Kent Carter. That is harsh, man. He's telling Bellator their product isn't worth stealing? Jeez. I, I respectfully disagree. I think their product <laughs> is totally worth stealing. <laughs> well, look, man. I mean, there's some good fights on this card. There's some good fighters on this card. It's just that that fight doesn't necessarily happen to be the main event of this card. I think if you're trying to sell this to... Uh, to hardcore fans and maybe maybe even some casual people, you got to you got to concentrate on the likes of Michael Chandler. You that's, know, that's what I was going to say. Is that's what I would do is just replay that first Chandler Alvarez fight over and over yeah, again. See if you can get that shit on a twenty four hour loop over on Spike TV. Yeah, they got nothing else to no, do. No, nothing else. We'll just what? save the new TNA for next week. It's fine. Yeah, we don't have to air those Blue Mountain State reruns. We can we can show some Chandler Alvarez. You know, I mean, that, I think, is how you sell this. And it's it's kind of a shame that the whole Rampage Tito thing has taken some of the focus away from that. Yeah, it is. And I was thinking I was thinking about that fight a little bit, too, just because, uh, you know, obviously nobody expects that fight to be great. And both Rampage and Tito Ortiz have are shadows of their former selves. They've both fallen a little bit on hard times. Uh, we made a lot of mock of it when that turned out that was going to be their main event, and I think rightfully so. But at the same time, that's not necessarily a spectacle fight because when you think about it, the matchmaking is actually pretty even. You know, Rampage Jackson against Tito Ortiz. Neither well, okay, but I mean, neither of these guys was was cut from the UFC, right? They both left of their own accord. Uh, and the fact is, if both these guys were still kicking around in the octagon, I don't think we would be that surprised to see them show up fighting each other on a UFC uh, pay-per-view card. So I think if you're Bellator, you know, you've, you've done everything you can to make it into a spectacle by having them do weeks and weeks of appearances on, on professional wrestling and producing a goofy uh, promo spot where they walk through the city like they're playing the actual game of Rampage. Uh, but I don't know. I guess you just kind of got to stick to your guns about it and say, look, man, if these guys, you know, this is a fight that UFC would totally make if these guys were still there. Uh, I want to point out something that I noticed on Twitter this week or last week uh, where Somebody asks uh, Bjorn Rebney, Rampage, and Tito Ortiz, hey, is your fight three rounds or five rounds? Can't seem to find out. Um, to which Bjorn Rebney replies, three. <laughs> and then Tito Ortiz immediately jumps on there and says, three? I've been training for five rounds. Shit. Now, see, this That's is how you figure that out. This, on Twitter? Is, this is where we have to hope that Tito Ortiz has like a dry, semi ironic sense of humor that we just don't appreciate via the internet. Yeah, no, and, I'm sure that's totally the case. <laughs> See, that's like I was saying before, they haven't done themselves any favors here, like trying to make this thing look like a legitimate contest with one of the one of the main event participants finding out how long the fight is via Twitter. Yeah, and see, I, I'm now that we're talking about it, I feel like if they had got us like prepared our, our expectations in a certain way for this fight, maybe I not making such a big deal out of announcing it and everything. If they'd stuck it on there as like, hey, it's the third fight on a pay-per-view. Right, which it probably should be. Yeah, uh, and just because we're doing it just for shits and gigs, then fine. You know, maybe uh, 
maybe that one just it's, it adds a little name value, uh, but it doesn't take attention away from like Chandler Alvarez, which I think is really main event quality. Then okay, but then, I don't know. I also look across the rest of the the lineup, and it seems like Bellator is just like. Who have we got that anybody's heard of? Throw right. them on there. Well, I mean, that's, that actually is the case. That's, <laughs> yes. If you're Bellator and you're going to put together a pay-per-view card, like that's how you have to do it. At the same time, Michael Chandler, Eddie Alvarez rematch, which probably should be the main event here. Like That's a good fight. That's a fight MMA fans want to see. Uh, and then you got Pat Curran on there as well, and he's a dude that I think that you could probably make a, a successful pay-per-view promotional commercial about yeah. just how he's the best fighter in the world that you've never seen fight before <laughs> well hey i mean that's worth illegally streaming right there is it not i think i think it is and we haven't even talked about king mo no put no, a radio mic in front of that guy he'll sell you a couple pay-per-views yeah no i feel like you you put all that stuff together uh and tell people oh and by the way you remember tito ortiz and rampage jackson right eh, they'll stop by We'll see what they got. I feel like then... Yeah, you want to be able to put Tito Ortiz and Rampage Jackson on a poster that's on the wall at the press box where Ben Folks is having breakfast one morning. Just enjoying a leisurely looks breakfast. Looks up and sees it, and he's like, oh, shit. Now I know what I'm going to do with that extra 30 bucks that I've got burning a hole in my pocket. That okay. I have saved by eating my breakfast repeatedly at the press that's box. right, and probably stole from Chad Dennis when he went out of the room to use the restroom. Oh, all comes full circle. So I feel like we did a really good job at yeah. that, actually, selling that pay-per-view. That's right. So give us your money, Kent Carter. Give it to us. The second piece of listener mail this week comes from Mike Moore. He writes, so during the Kaufman Eye fight, which was fan-freaking-tastic and went the wrong way, by the way, Joe Rogan wondered aloud whether MMA officials would treat cuts differently for women than they do for men. Am I a little ignorant in being immediately perplexed at the fact that this was even a question? Equality for women in the workplace may still have a ways to go on several fronts, but as far as MMA goes, I've not seen any variation in how they're compared slash treated. In fact, the Fight Tweets piece on MMAfighting.com, that's Dave Doyle's Fight Tweets piece, it's by the Dave way. Doyle. Uh, this past week involved a question about whether there were disparities between men's and women's pay to which it was unofficially found that it's pretty equal. So am I crazy to wonder why this was even a consideration or do you guys think that we may actually see the women quote unquote protected more than the men? Now, see, I didn't hear Joe Rogan say this. No. And I know you didn't hear it either, but maybe because you just talking too damn much just, throughout yeah, the pay-per-view was run doing my monologue yeah. that I like to do getting you trapped in my dialogue prison, <laughs> just you and me locking eyes. <laughs> Uh, I did, some people hit me up on Twitter to, to say that they heard this, uh, to heard, heard Joe Rogan say this. So I guess we have to assume that it, it happened. I didn't hear it. And in fact, I did, I did say on Twitter and was going to say here on the podcast, this was actually the least embarrassing play by play call of any women's MMA fight in the UFC thus far to which I guess I have to disagree a little bit with Mike Moore's uh, statement that he doesn't see any variation in how the women are compared slash treated to the men in the UFC because I think that you know it's it's hard to find a women's MMA appearance in the UFC that doesn't have some pretty cringe worthy like either patronizing commentary or just guys like kind of sticking their feet in their mouth without even knowing it like and then and the Kaufman I fight I thought was uh Notable just because I didn't hear Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg call them tough girls or just refer to the ladies Beautiful over and chicks. over again, which you which just is embarrassing when they do that. So I've, I thought, hey, man, someone must have sent around a memo over at, at Zufa headquarters, Zufa Tower in Las Vegas being like, hey, let's just call these things the same way we call the men's fights. We had a, a damn with faint praise there, the least embarrassing call that you've encountered of a women's MMA fight. Well, I don't think that we would heap a lot of praise on how guys have called 
women's MMA fights in the past, That's right? True. Okay, so wait, Joe Rogan is was worried that they would treat cuts differently. Why? I don't get the logic there. What what was the context? I, I guess because I, I don't know. I guess because women would need to be protected more, as Mike Moore brings up, or just because it would make us like more uncomfortable. Like, or that the cage side doctor might be more squeamish about allowing like a, a female fighter who had their head sliced all the way open right. like Diego Sanchez did to continue? As it turned out, it, it was a moot point because the ringside doctors there in Texas just decided they were going to let everybody bleed out. Yeehaw. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I also don't know what Joe Rogan was talking about there. Maybe, maybe he just found himself on live TV without a script and, and, and was just trying to fill time or something. I don't, I don't exactly know. You know, I think, though, I feel like I don't see the complaint as much anymore, though, that it used to be when women's MMA was first – starting to, to build in popularity, I'd see it more like uh, where people who are like hardcore MMA fans would be on message boards and stuff talking about like, oh, I love MMA, but I just can't stand to watch the women get hurt. Can't, I don't like to see a woman get punched in the face. I don't like to see them bleed and stuff. I feel like uh, either those people have com- have actually stopped watching it and therefore aren't complaining because they're not even watching Mission it. Mission accomplished. <laughs> or that as with a lot of other similar things, you just get used to it. Even if you had like some kind of squeamishness about women's MMA that you didn't have about men's MMA, uh, after you know half a dozen times of seeing them punch each other in the face, maybe you just it doesn't seem as notable to you anymore. I don't know. Yeah, and, and or you realize they're totally good. Uh, next question this week comes from Dan Yoon. He writes, kudos to the ref in the Tim Boach-CB Dalloway match for taking a point away from CB in the third round for the second eye poke, parenthetically, even though it was accidental. But what was up with the scoring? Two of the three judges scored the round, scored the fight 30-26, giving Tim Boach all three rounds. And then the third judge scored the fight 29-27, giving all three rounds to CB. Personally, I scored the match a 28-28 draw, giving CB rounds two and three, taking a point away in the third. How did you guys score the fight? Uh, I don't even know how I scored the fight. but You scored it like... Fifty to three for yeah. the barbarian. Sixty nine nothing. Is that your guy for the for the horde, the leader Boach. of the horde? Uh, and before we actually answer this question, I just want to say, as to the first line of this email, um, shouldn't matter if it's accidental. No, no, not to the second one. I don't even think after the first one. Well, the first one, okay. I mean, close your fucking hands, dude. <laughs> I get. I mean, I see what you're saying there, but that's basically advocating for the rules of mixed martial arts to suddenly change. Because I think the which I do. And hey, I, if we wanted to do that, fine. But we'd have to say so. I think it would be kind of bullshit for somebody, some ref, to just be like, "Well, no, you I'm establishing just a all, all the, right out of, right <laughs> yeah. out of the gate." Yeah, but yeah, people would start closing their hands if you start just taking points away immediately. But yeah, it doesn't matter if it's accidental. I mean, if you poke the dude in the eye once and they tell you, and then you do it again, what else can you possibly do there? Right. I, and I feel like that's a thing that I see a lot in uh, trying to figure out how the the rules of MMA should be enforced. Is people being like, "Oh, it was it was accidental. He didn't mean to do it. You know, he didn't mean to kick him in the nuts." But it's like, man, you can't be in there trying to like. Uh, figure out a guy's intent in the middle of a fight. We already right. asked these refs to do way too much. When I don't think we can charge them with trying to figure out what what's in a man's heart. <laughs> well, we do ask them to do that though. When when it comes to like fight ending fouls, the determination of whether it was an intentional or accidental, and they'll almost always rule accidental. Uh, that really does start to matter. We we are then trying to rule on what's in a man's heart. Uh, but 
Okay. As to the actual fight, I was surprised. Uh, I think actually the 28-28 draw sounds pretty accurate. Yeah, I thought that's what was coming, honestly, after they took the point away from the, the Connecticut blue blood Clarence Byron Dalloway the third uh, <laughs> there in, in what, the final round. Is that when he lost the point? I think it was the third, so. right? Yeah. Uh, so I thought a draw was coming. And yes, the uh, the scores were crazy. I don't know how you would score that 30-26 for Tim Boach. Uh, but I mean, in the end, felt good, man. Felt good because I don't think anybody wanted to see Clarence Byron Dalloway the third win this fight after after the taunting, after the putting your hands up in the air, waggling your head around, and then the two eye pokes. Like I feel like maybe justice wasn't served, but <laughs> the spirit of justice was served in a way. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, ever since you have started your own private campaign to rebrand CB Dalloway as Clarence Byron Dalloway the third, the Connecticut blue blood, by the, <laughs> the way. Connecticut blue blood, you know, coming straight into his fights from Martha's Vineyard or, or some shit. I, ever since you started doing this, I really wish that CB Dalloway would have adopted that early on in his career because man, we could have had a lot of fun with that. Well, it's clear that he missed an enormous opportunity yeah. to, to come out to the cage in early Hunter Hearst Helmsley fashion with like a sweater tied around his neck a blazer. Yeah. Like a, a yes, sponsor blazer, some elbow patches on his blazer. Actually, the worst thing about Tim Boach getting that win was that I already had my tweet written about how Clarence Byron Dalway pulls off the win and they're partying down at the Kennebunkport Yacht Club. <laughs> Had to delete that one because he didn't end up winning. But maybe in the future. I'm sure he'll win another fight. There'll be another opportunity for me to throw that out there. Well, that's, a, that's the real travesty in all this is Chad Dennis didn't get a u- chance to use his what he thought was a humorous tweet. Dessert wine for everybody. <laughs> the last piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Evan Whitmore. He writes, Dana White said after UFC 166 that Gilbert Melendez's performance was, quote, a huge step back for TJ Grant. Do you think this kind of view is just going to lead guys with con- concussion-related symptoms fighting sooner than they should? Is this just inevitable in a, a professional sport? Yeah, I don't know about... Uh, encouraging guys with, with concussion syndrome to fight earlier than they should. I mean, that's probably just a problem anyway. Uh, but it does totally suck for TJ Grant. And we have to say at this point, not unexpected. That's a weird way to phrase it, though, isn't it? Calling yeah, it a, a step, step back for TJ Grant? Who didn't do anything. Hasn't done anything this weekend. How did he take a step back? Yeah, I mean, to, it's one thing to be like, hey, it's a big step forward for Gilbert Melendez. Really thrust Gilbert Melendez back into the spotlight at lightweight. Uh you know, maybe to the ex- at the expense of T.J. Grant, but yeah, it does. Though I, I mean, I remember thinking about this when he first pulled out of that fight, or and pulled out of it the second time because of the ongoing concussion symptoms, and how since that's so rare, you you'd have to think that, and since he's likely going to suffer some negative consequences because of, how can guys not look at that and think, okay, well, hey, even if I'm dealing with something like that, career wise, the best thing for me to do would be to suck it up and take a chance anyway. I mean. You would have to be reasonable to the point of being too reasonable to be a fighter in order to make that decision in the future, uh, especially after if you know things don't work out for TJ Grant in the long run. Because who knows? We've seen this before where he might never get that title shot. One or two things goes wrong for him after after this, and it might have been that was the, the only chance he's ever going to get, and he stepped away from it to take care of his brain, and oh, hey, no room in this sport for guys who care about their brains. Sorry, TJ. Right. Well, and, and really, when it comes to like a fighter's willingness and and determination to fight, a concussion is probably 
no different than like a blown out knee or a twisted ankle or a broken hand or a screwed up back, you know, all of which we see guys go out there and fight with, uh, almost as a matter of course, some injuries more than others to the point that, that it's become somewhat cliche in this sport to say nobody comes into the cage a hundred percent. And you got to think concussions are no different than that. Maybe even a little bit, uh, worse just because, uh, a little bit more of a sneaky injury and a yeah. little bit more, uh, uh, probably, there's still that stigma attached to it. So guys are still going to feel like they're pussies if they're, if they have a, you know, if they're feeling weird because they got their bell rung or whatever. Yeah. Well, and you know, you fight with your hand injured and end up totally shattering your hand making it a lot worse. All right. So you get some pins put in there or whatever. Uh, and thing aches on rainy days. Fine. But you know, you, you push it with a concussion and you do something to your brain and you're going to live with that the rest of your life, which then might be shortened and even terrible. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we don't want to slip too far into hyperbole since I think it was just last week that we answered the listener mail question about how people have been overhyping fights recently. But I do think it's safe to say that UFC 166 was maybe the best top to bottom fight show of recent memory. Uh, from prelims to main event, there was a lot of just really awesome action on this show. Uh, where does it stack up for you? I don't know if you want to come out of the garage saying uh, greatest of all time, but uh, really good fucking show, right? was a really good fucking show. I don't know, but greatest of all time. I mean, it's one of those things where I, when I was sitting there at the end of the main event and Dana White and Joe Rogan are doing their stand-up next to the cage talking about how this was the greatest ever. And like at my initial reaction, just because you're used to that stuff from them, is to be like, dude, come on. It can't, it can't be the fight of the century every six weeks. Like, let, let's pull back a little bit. But then I started to trying to think of like what was a better you know, full fight card or just more entertaining complete night of fights all around hard to come up with one i mean it was a, a good night you know just not a whole lot there that wasn't really exciting and also some just tremendous violence visited yes. upon people that's right uh you know what i liked about it what is was that it was a show that looked good on paper and also turned out to be good in practice how about that which i feel like undermines the old lie that we always hear which is you know what's great is when cards that you don't think are going to be that good come out and exceed expectations no not true. You know what is great is when cards that look stacked on paper actually turn out to be awesome in practice. Well, that's what you ought to do. Yeah. And a, a return to what I like to think of the old UFC philosophy, which is, hey, we're, we're selling pay-per-views not based on just a main event and a bunch of filler the way boxing does. We're selling it based on the full product, like the full night of, of action that we're offering you. That's what they did here. You know, right. you look at this lineup, and this is not one of the top heavy cards that we've seen recently. Uh, this was solid all the way around, and, you know, all the people pretty much that you expected to come in and do something awesome did something awesome. And, you know, and then the dudes who you expected to kind of not do that much, like your boy Tim Boach and Clarence Byron Dalloway III, kind of didn't do that much. 
great. It was a great fight. Uh, well, let's start at the let's start at the top. I know there's a lot of stuff to uh, to break down on this card, and and we don't have an unlimited time to do it. But obviously, in the main event, Cain Velasquez was able to come out and for the second time in a row, kind of turn things into his kind of fight against Junior Dos Santos. And uh, in retrospect, I think we we have to. I guess not admit, but come to the conclusion again that the Cain Velasquez is the kind of guy that has a skill set that a lot of heavyweights just don't have. And he's a guy who is uh, really able to go out there and push a pace and, and take away his opponent's strengths in a, in a way that, that while not uh, particularly dynamic in terms of like forcing stoppages, certainly effective an effective way to go about it and, and the kind of style that a lot of guys just can't keep up with. Were you as surprised at Junior Dos Santos's approach as I was? I really expected him to try and do something different this one. Yeah, and I don't know, man. It, it might be a situation where Junior Dos Santos doesn't have a ton else to do. You know, he's he's a devastating boxer. Uh, he obviously has really hard punches and damn near knocked Cain Velasquez out again at the in the just opening seconds of this fight, which were, I think, undoubtedly Junior Dos Santos's best few seconds. Uh, but then, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't just doesn't have the wrestling game that that Velasquez does. Certainly, I think it would have been good to see uh, JDS try to circle a little bit more because the, the, the one thing that he kept doing, he did it in this fight and in the last fight was just sort of backing up into the cage and and making it easier for Velasquez to get him into those clinch and dirty boxing situations where he just owns people. Uh, and I think he did that in the second fight and we thought, well, he's not in his right mind because yeah, he clobbered exactly. that, well, while they were up against the fence. But and this time he had scientists that's and right, everything. Just to gaggle the scientists on his team. Uh, but you're right. In, in this fight, it sure looked a lot like the last one in that he didn't seem to feel a lot of uh, emphasis or, or a lot of, uh, you know, put a lot of... Uh, 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 urgency behind circling or away from the chain link which kind of i think in a lot of ways turned out to be his undoing well yeah and it seemed like he's just when you get into that style you're really relying on catching the guy coming in like and he had a little bit of success with that you know throwing those short elbows to try and get Velasquez as he's moving in close for that clinch or just trying to load up on the uppercut to, to catch him changing levels and coming in on you uh but i don't i mean you got to give Cain Velasquez some credit. He's going to be smart enough to figure that out. He can see you doing that just the, the same way the rest of us can. I feel like one of the uh, great strengths we always hear about with Junior Dos Santos is his boxing, his footwork. I mean, your footwork can't do a whole lot to help you when you've got your back glued to the fence. Uh, and the few moments in this fight we did see where he kind of got out in space, uh, it, it looked like he had the potential to really do something there. And then we ended up right back there again. I mean, though... Again, I, I guess we have to wonder how much of of that was he got you know caught with some heavy stuff early on, especially you know in the uh, he got, he got hit with some in the first round, got nearly finished in the third round. Uh, so maybe he wasn't entirely in his right mind in this one either. Uh, I'm honestly just kind of amazed that he made it as deep into that fight as he did. Maybe not about the best thing for him either. No. Uh, and I assume we will talk about that more in round number two, but just another pretty dominant performance from Cain Velasquez. At the same time, though, I feel like a lot like we saw in the second fight, 
the same sort of maybe Achilles heels for Cain Velasquez kind of rearing their heads in in this fight where, yes, he's an extremely dominant heavyweight. Yes, he's unquestionably the best heavyweight in the world right now. But to me, he's not a dude that looks unbeatable. You know, he doesn't have that same uh, Anderson Silva, John Jones sort of panache where, where you're just like, oh, well, there's nobody that could possibly beat this guy. And I think it has a lot to do with Cain Velasquez's style of fight, which which can be really uh, suffocating and really dominant. But at the same time, we saw again in this fight, dude, for a guy who just got his Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, allegedly, uh, allegedly. Le- leading up to this fight, like he seems to to eschew submissions, like almost like the plague. Uh, and uh, if, if that's how you're going to fight in the heavyweight division and your game plan is going to kind of be go out there and grind on a guy for five rounds, uh, in a division where all it takes for is one punch for you to get knocked out, I feel like that is a dangerous strategy and and almost a frustrating one when you watch Cain Velasquez fight, and especially during this fight, which you're right, I think got kind of hard to watch there toward the end. But uh, uh, there, there are times in the fight where where you where he has Dos Santos down or whatever, and it feels like he should be like you know trying to choke the guy, just see what happens, see if you can get a stoppage, but he's kind of foregoing that in order to 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 get position and, and try to unload more punches. And it just seemed like maybe to his detriment. Well, you know, I don't know if I would describe it as an Achilles heel uh, because you're right. The one way when you think of it, you think, okay, how does Cain Velasquez get beat? How was how somebody going to come along and beat him? And he doesn't seem unbeatable, but the way you imagine it happening is he's going to go out there and be doing this to somebody one night and they're just going to hit him with one big shot the way Junior Dos Santos right. did in that first fight and, and knock him out. I don't think you really are worried that somebody is going to be able to come out there and stop Cain Velasquez from doing what he wants to do. Like, that doesn't seem all that likely. Right. And I think, though, that he is pretty good at at managing his strengths and weaknesses in that regard because, as we saw, you know, when he had Dos Santos hurt later in the fight and had him pressed up against the fence and he was punching his way into that clinch even when he didn't really have to. You know, Dos Santos should be trying to clinch you when you're uh, beating the shit out of him like that. You don't have to punch your way into the clinch there and wait and then back up and punch again. You could hear his corner telling him, back up, back up and, you know, just put it on him. And, and maybe he could have forced to finish that way if you just kept the, the pressure on him, kept kept punching him and forced Herb Dean to step in there and do something. But at the same time, that's also... One of the ways you can imagine Cain Velasquez get, getting caught is if right. he was like, okay, now I'm just going to throw punch combos until the ref says that's enough. Yeah. You know, and that's where he could get caught. And so he didn't stay there very long. Right. I mean, he took this smart path that I think people are then going to criticize for being boring. Uh, but, you know, hey, I, I can totally understand why he'd choose that approach in that situation. Yeah, but I think, and I think you just said this, but like at that point in the fight where it's clear that, that Junior Dos Santos is just ready to go, like he's, he's almost. He, he's out on his feet pretty much. And it seemed like it would have been the better strategy for Cain Velasquez to, to back up and throw punches and maybe get out of there. And yet it seems like he just physically cannot stop himself from shooting in and getting the clinch uh, and, and going with his smart game plan. But I think in, in a situation like that, that's actually not the smart thing to do because really you're also giving Dos Santos time to recover from from the shots that you just landed on him. So to me, the smart thing to do in that situation would be try to stop the fight because I think you're right. Nobody's going to be able to stop Cain Velasquez from doing what he's doing. I just think what he wants to do gives the other guy a lot of opportunities to win. Yeah, I mean, some of that I think is just as a result of his style, and he's not the guy who's necessarily going to finish you with one big power right. shot like, quite like some other heavyweights. But I still think you look at him, you look at the landscape right now, I mean, say he fights Fabricio Verdum next, 
he's definitely going to be the favorite in that. You know, Reese Overdoom, tough guy, and has some some different things to threaten Cain Velasquez with. But I'd see Velasquez winning that fight. Uh, if he does that, I mean, that's heavyweight history right there. He'll become the first guy to defend the, the UFC heavyweight title three times in a row. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot that's going to stop him from doing that. Sure. I mean, it, it seems now, for the first time in a while, we can really say that we know exactly. It's not like this guy's the best heavyweight for the moment, or this guy, you know, we think he's the best heavyweight, but we're going to find out soon. You know, he's by far the the top heavyweight because I think Junior Dos Santos is number two, and we saw in these last two fights a big gap between them. Yeah, and honestly, not a very high hurdle there in order to hurdle yourself into UFC heavyweight lore. Uh, it's always been the 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 most uh, unstable of the of the championship belts. Uh, so you know, Cain Velasquez, great fighter, best best heavyweight in the world for sure. But at the same time, like being the greatest heavyweight in UFC history is not necessarily an enormous uh, task. Oh, really? This is this is what you're going to do? Chad Dunn is going to say, oh, anybody could be the best heavyweight in UFC history. <laughs> well, not that, but you know. I might start training tomorrow. We've, <laughs> we've talked about this before, that it, sometimes it seems like the UFC heavyweight title is cursed. And like I think it speaks for itself that the most number of consecutive UFC heavyweight title defenses in history is three. Yeah. Like, that's... That's a that's a pretty low hurdle, dude. Yeah, well, okay, and I mean, some of it I think is the heavyweight seems to be where the uh, the nature of MMA itself uh, kind of works against it because one one big punch, you know, in the little gloves can end a fight at right. any time. So that small margin of error, yeah, that instills a certain amount of unpredictability. And then also, as we've talked about before, hey, dude, if you're six four, two hundred fifty pounds, and you're like a really great athlete. Go play football or, or, or some other sport where you can make millions of dollars uh, and uh, you know not have to put up with this shit. Well, let's talk about Daniel Cormier a little bit. Obviously, he just pretty much ran through Roy Nelson in, in a way that, that a lot of people expected. I think at this point, the jury is in on Daniel Cormier. The, the one thing that, that we've been able to say critically about him in the past is that it seemed like he had all the potential in the world, but maybe he was a little... Uh, uh, inexperienced and, and really had not fought a ton of great guys. At this point, though, when you go Antonio Silva, Josh Barnett, Frank Mir, Roy Nelson, uh, make it a little Dion staring sandwich there as the one guy <laughs> that you want to leave out of that list. But when you when you, when those are for your last five wins, uh, and none of them really competitive. Yeah, none of them competitive at all. Really, eh, jury's in. I would say he's uh, he's a real deal. If anything, it seemed like people criticizing him for this fight are saying, "Oh, I don't." You know, I don't think he did that well against Nelson. Wouldn't do that well at light heavyweight. It's just maybe because he is beating some people so easily uh, that you you assume he could do more if he wanted to. I think that's maybe one of the things that come out of the the Roy Nelson fight. He looked like he was just so far ahead of Roy Nelson in so many different ways that people thought, oh well, you know, he's he's coasting or he's taking it easy. Uh, or Roy Nelson trying to say afterwards that he didn't think Daniel Cormier engaged. Like, man, he was yeah, go watch the fight. Bro. He was Jesus. thumping you on the head and then getting out of the way before you could hit him back. I don't know. That seems pretty much like he was engaging fairly well. Uh, I don't. I'm really excited to see how he does at light heavyweight because, you know, he's still going to be a, the shorter guy. He's still, you know, it's not like he's going to go and start having a, a huge size advantage over these dudes. But, uh, you know, a quick heavyweight like that with his wrestling skills. I think there's a lot of interesting matchups there for him, and I think he does quite well. I mean, him against Alexander Gustafson, Lusty Gusty, your guy. That'd be a good fight. That'd be a great fight. Love to see him against Phil Davis, too. Uh, that would be another good uh, perspective, number one contender fight. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
a lot of people watch Daniel Cormier fire and they're just like, yeah, he's good, but I don't think he'll really have anything for John Jones. And the truth is, I don't know if he will beat John Jones. I don't know if he's capable of that either, but that's a division where you kind of need all the guys that you can get at the top of the division who seem like they might even have a chance. Yeah. And you know, you can see his point of view leaving heavyweight. His teammate is there as the heavyweight champion. Doesn't look like he's going to give it up anytime soon, even though Chad Dennis will tell you, hey, that's no big deal, maintain the USC championship. It's, come on. <laughs> kind it's of a bummer, though, really, that those two dudes are teammates because that would be an awesome fight. It would be an awesome fight. And who knows? Who knows what the years may bring, Chad Dennis? That's right. Uh, just a lot to talk about on this card. Gabriel Gonzaga knocks out Sean Jordan with a uh, a picture-perfect right hook. Uh, in the first round, you also had a, 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 a really impressive performance from John Dodson in the curtain jerker on the pay-per-view where he takes out uh, Daryl the Mongoose Montague uh, in who was making his UFC UFC debut, but has been a flyweight who has been really highly regarded for a long time. Uh, it's kind of a, an interesting situation at flyweight because we still don't have a lot of depth there. So it seems like Joseph Benavidez and John Dodson are just going to keep making runs at Demetrius Johnson until one of them beats him, and then they'll just take runs at each other, I guess. But, uh, man, John Dodson, a guy who at 125 pounds certainly has knockout power and uh, has the 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 skills to, to do impressive things that I think counteract a lot of the criticisms we hear a lot of the time about small guys because this guy can stop you. Yeah, and I think as he gets more experience, like you could kind of see, uh, I think that's what cost him in his title shot was just uh, not being able to adjust on the fly quite as well as, uh, as Demetrius Johnson could, and, and you know, to see him get another crack at it one day and, and try and bring some of that experience, bring some of what he's learned back into a, a rematch. I'd be interested in that. I mean, I can see how. You know, you don't want to have a division where it's just the same three guys fighting each other and over, over and over again. But if you do have to have that, just because you don't have a whole lot of other options, those aren't three bad dudes to have to do it with. No, yeah, no, they're they're doesn't get much more awesome than than that trio. Uh, I gotta tell you, if I am a guy in Gabriel Gonzaga's camp right now, Team Link, up there in Massachusetts, uh, I think you'd fit in well there. I think that I would just float the idea you're undefeated with the mustache. Maybe we <laughs> maybe we roll with it. Maybe we don't shave it. Maybe it's like a playoff beard kind of thing. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, and then if this doesn't work out, you know, this whole professional fighting thing, you roll right into a career as a state police. <laughs> Yeah, wow, I could I could totally see that. Uh, anyway, let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what is your are, are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to the Nogueras who came to the defense of uh, Husamar Paul Harris uh, by saying that, uh, you know, as a lot of people have said about him, that he's a stand-up guy, good guy outside the cage and all that. And claiming, though, that he has, quote, never hurt anyone. Except that he just hurt Mike Pierce, who suffered a sprained MCL and a completely torn ligament in his ankle due to Paul Harris holding that heel hook for too long. You fucking kidding me? I can say never hurt anyone right after he hurt somebody. We all saw it. Just hurt him. Are you fucking kidding me? It just happened. Kidding fucking kidding me. Well, Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me concerns uh, the UFC broadcast again because we saw in a, a prelim fight that TJ Waldberger got badly knocked out by Adlon Amagoff. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, and then uh, had to go to the hospital because uh, 
he he was down for quite some time and not really moving around on the canvas. Uh, and, you know, you were able to see reports about this from people who were on the scene and were using Twitter and stuff like that to, to uh, keep people updated. But they didn't really mention it on the UFC broadcast at all, which just serves, I think, to underscore the idea that uh, you're not watching an independent broadcast here of of the fights on the television this isn't like the nfl on cbs where the dudes who are calling the action work for cbs these guys work for the ufc so you're not getting an unfiltered view of things uh and so kind of an are you fucking kidding me moment to to ignore the fact that tj waldberger stayed down on the canvas for so long and then had to go to the hospital to get checked out and i feel like an even further are you fucking kidding me moment is later in the broadcast once we've we've gotten the all clear via twitter that tj waldberger is okay and alert in the hospital and probably wants to know what time his fight is uh (laughs) but uh then after after we've know that he's okay just go ahead and show the fight later on and after the after the main event is over because you need to fill some time. Seems a little bit callous. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. Chad, near as I can tell after watching UFC 166, the way they figure out whether you're fit to continue in a cage fight in the state of Texas is they hold up a couple fingers right in front of your face, and if you can see them, you're good. Well, they cover, let's be be fair, they cover one eye. Okay, (laughs) that's true. They they will cover one eye on occasion, uh, but... uh, you know, after we saw Diego Sanchez be allowed to continue with a, a cut that looked bad to start with, and then I'm pretty sure just started stretching across his damn head as the fight went on. It looked like you could just kind of like take your, your thumbs and just spread it apart and his whole scalp would, would just pop right off. Yeah, no, there were Lilliputians peering out of the cut. Yeah. You could see their tiny, tiny fists curling over the top of the cut and peering out at, at Gilbert Melendez. You know, we look at that, peer into the man's brain, uh, and decide he's good to continue. Uh, Junior Dos Santos takes a hellacious beating. Uh, we, we decide he's fine to continue. And on one hand, those are both, you know, exciting fights, give the fans what they want. You know, we're, we're got Joe Rogan calling Gilbert Melendez and Diego Sanchez the fight of the century. Uh, maybe, you know, definitely not going to say that if that fight gets stopped because of a cut earlier on, but man, to what point do we get to where we decide, all right, it might be awesome if you were able to keep going after this, but probably not safe and we won't allow it. Yeah. Especially where the, the, you know, state oversight is concerned. I feel like that there are, are safety mechanisms in place for, for these sort of situations and in this case it seemed like the safety mechanisms failed a little bit uh especially with a wily veteran like diego sanchez who i think we saw the first time when they they stopped the fight to have the doctor come in and check the cut you could tell this wasn't diego sanchez's first rodeo when uh, he was just like no no i'm good i just got some vaseline in my eye like 
yeah, Diego Sanchez had that one in his back pocket. Yeah, like, we can see your skull. Come this, on. This, this is what I do when they when they come in to check the cut. I tell them I just got a little Vaseline in my eye. I mean, he probably knows. Just guess two. If they ask you how many fingers they're holding up, just guess two because they usually don't go over two. Uh, but yeah, man, it, it got hard to watch. Uh, and and uh, I have to be honest, I feel like I understand why the, the why those fights are popular, and I enjoy watching them. I think it's it's fun to in a real like visceral way. It's fun to watch fights like that. But at the same time, uh, I feel my enthusiasm for them being tempered a little bit as we go along. If for no other reason than we're just more informed now about what is happening to a guy's brain, especially you know just a week or two after that frontline documentary about uh, right about uh, concussions in the NFL, uh, it, you know, it affects the way I watch the sport. I have to be honest about that. Hell, it affects the way I watch football, yeah, for definitely. God's sakes. Uh, so, you know, when I see these kind of slugfests, I do now more than I used to find myself in the middle of it considering the guy's brain and his future prospects, especially with a guy like uh, Diego Sanchez where – He's been in a ton of wars, obviously. Uh, it, it surprised us last week that he was as young as he is on the on the show. Uh, and you can say what you want to about Diego Sanchez, but, like, he's a good guy. Like, he is a uh, give-you-the-shirt-off-his-back kind of good guy. And uh, when I'm watching him out there take that punishment, uh, and, and maybe it was because I just did the story about him for UFC Magazine l- l- last year, but, like, I, I can't stop myself from, like, thinking about his life. Honestly, like because I wow. know that like he's married to the woman who was the manager on his high school wrestling team and he's come back from substance abuse and like come back from the situation where he had six finger six figures uh, swindled out of him, you know, and like uh, he's trying to be a father to the five year old son of the woman that he married and they're trying to have more babies and have a larger family. So like and, and like these are things that I'm thinking about while I'm watching uh, him take eight punches from Gilbert Melendez in order to land one. And I have to be honest, that does, in fact, undermine my enthusiasm a little bit. Well, and it seems like there's this recipe for if you want to have a bunch of people call your fight as, you know, an awesome fight or a fight of the night and have a shot at that bonus. And having it kind of just be slugfest seems to be a big part of that. Uh, you know, that's a fight where Gilbert Melendez pretty much dominated that entire fight. Diego Sanchez had one moment where it looked like he might, you know, come out of nowhere and steal it. And then that moment evaporated really quickly. And that's, I think, what gets people to say, oh, you know, fight of the century or, or fight of the year. And really, it was not a competitive fight. You know, it was Gilbert Melendez beating Diego Sanchez up and Diego Sanchez proving that again that he can take it, which we already knew. And when he started talking on the mic after that fight, that's when I started to get really worried. I, I mean... He sounded like you after, uh, you know, a few too many IPAs. Well, like he sounded a, better than that. Come on, <laughs> give the guy some credit. Well, I mean, he was his, his sentiments were more eloquent than yours. You just start yelling about the president and, you know, birther nonsense. But, uh, you know, he was really noticeably slurring his words. It was tough to understand him there. Uh, and this isn't like Junior Dos Santos, who's a non-native English speaker, you know, that's worrisome. And you mentioned that that frontline documentary about concussions in the NFL. Uh, and that has really, really for me, I watched that. And then I watched the thing that Showtime did, the documentary they did on Lawrence Taylor. Uh, and, you know, who knows if Lawrence Taylor has CTE, although 
you know, after how many years he spent in the NFL, I don't think anybody would be terribly surprised if when he died, they cut his brain open and, and found out that he had it too. Uh, but there, the documentary especially highlights some of the missteps you might say in his personal life. Uh, and they have like, you know, interviews with his kids talking about what a, a terrible, completely absent father he was. And it makes you wonder, man, what if they found out, what if, you know, Lawrence Taylor died, they found out that he had had CTE. How does, how does that change then your, when you look back on the things that a guy did while he was alive, how do you change then your take on it? I mean, and think about something like this with a guy like Diego Sanchez, where, you know, this fight happens, we're all going, yeah, yeah, that was totally awesome. Uh, if, you know, 10 years down the road, his, his life is in shambles and, uh, you know, he's suffering the, the effects of, of fights like that. How then are we going to turn and look back on it? I don't know if we'll feel that great about it. Yeah, and you know, I guess the 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 go to answer, the personal responsibility answer, is always like, well, these guys know the risks. You know, they're made, no one's forcing them to go in there and fight. And and at this point, having watched, having seen those stories of, of the retired NFL players, at this point, I have to wonder, do they though? Like, they know the risks on a certain level, but I don't think that anybody is getting in the cage and uh, ex- get, getting into a slugfest and exchanging blows. And like considering the fact that they might turn into Mike Webster from the Pittsburgh Steelers, who was one of the guys that they profiled on that front line thing, uh, who died at like age 50 or something like that. And they had some footage of him in, in interviews later in the later part of his life where he like literally couldn't complete a sentence without forgetting what he was talking about. And you've seen other reports on HBO Real Sports and stuff like that about, you know, players that can't even they have to just sit in dark rooms, essentially, because their their concussion problems are so bad and their 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 mental state has deteriorated to such an extent so like on one hand i do understand the argument that like that these guys know the risks on the other hand i don't think that they can conceive of the gravity of it because no. i don't think i can conceive of the gravity no. of it like and you think that that's something that happens to other people right you know or that especially if you're a professional fighter which is a lifestyle that uh uh influences you to think that stuff like that happens to other people yeah you're special i mean you why would you be here if you weren't special or you know you could make that that argument though with a lot of different things like you know you and i enjoy a cocktail from time to time if somebody were to come to us and be like hey man when you're 70 you're really gonna wish you'd taken it a little easier on that stuff you're like yeah but by then i'll be 70 so who who gives a shit you know like that that doesn't matter that's that's way down the road man i don't have to worry about that now but you know uh the one of the things that i thought was really interesting in that frontline thing was there is there's a part where Lee Steinberg, the agent, is telling a story about Troy Aikman suffering a concussion in the NFC Championship game against the 49ers and him going into his hospital room afterwards and Troy being like, hey, where am I? Why am I here? And Steinberg kind of t- explaining it like you played a football game today. Uh, you won. You played well. You guys are going to go in the Super Bowl. And he's like, oh, awesome. Going to the Super Bowl. That's great. You know, and they'd celebrate. And then he's like 10 minutes would go by and Aikman would be like, where am I? Why am I here? Uh, and he said that they just went over and over and over again. And each time he told him he was going to the Super Bowl, he said he watched his face light up all over again, and they celebrated all over again. And, I mean, I've heard that almost that exact same kind of story told by trainers before. There's that story about Johnny Hendricks that's kind of like part of the Johnny Hendricks legend at this point where when he was first trying to decide if he wanted to do MMA and he went to Extreme Couture, didn't really know anything about boxing, was just been a college wrestler and started sparring with Phil Baroni. Uh, and was getting a little too, little too saucy for Brony's tastes, and Brony knocked him out. Uh, and I talked to Johnny Hendricks' dad about this, and he was saying, "Yeah, afterwards, um, 
you know, at one point, Johnny was sitting in the car. I was over there with, you know, a couple other people talking to Randy Couture, just kind of thanking them for letting us hang out here. Johnny gets out of the car, comes over, shakes Randy Couture's hands. It's really nice to meet him and everything. And then goes and sits back in the car. And then five minutes later, gets out of the car and, and comes up to Randy Couture, shakes his hand again, tells him it's really nice to meet him. Uh, and he said that they went back to the hotel room, had a long conversation where they agreed, okay, this MMA stuff, it isn't for you. You're going to go back to Oklahoma. You're going to be a wrestling coach. You know, leave this stuff to these guys. You know, you don't want to mess around with this kind of stuff. Uh, they agreed on it and everything. We're going to get on a play in the morning. And then when they wake up in the morning, Johnny Hendricks takes a shower, comes out and says, let's go to the gym. And he says, don't you remember? We agreed we we're going to go home. We we're going to do this. And he had no recollection of that conversation, had completely made up his mind. He wanted to be a fighter and look at him now, you know, and it's, it's part of like, it's a cool story for him now. I don't know if it'd be a cool story in 10 or 15 years. Yeah, uh, and the thing about fighters is, and the kind of the scary, maybe the more sobering part about it is, like, you couldn't make that frontline documentary about fighters because the point of the frontline documentary is look at all this crazy shit that we didn't know was happening is happening to these guys who play professional football. If you tried to make that about MMA fighters, people would be like, yeah, no shit. Dude. Yeah. They get punched in the head. So they're not going to have this outpouring of sympathy later in life. Uh, you know, they're not going to have the, the pension plan, uh, unless something dramatically changes to, uh, to increase their, their, you know, financial well-being and, and, and their, their, you know, the, the, the safety nets that are available for them for, for in the future. And for me, like, uh, like I said at the beginning, I understand why fights like, like, uh, Diego Sanchez, Gilbert Melendez are, are popular and I enjoyed watching it. Uh, and I understand why Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos is popular and I enjoyed watching it, even though it got pretty hard to watch toward the end. And I think when you've got Dana White, whose job is to sell you awesome fights saying after the event, uh, that should have been stopped in the third. Okay. That's when you know that like it got ugly. If if the guy who is the salesman whose job it is to tell you how awesome it was is telling you that it should have been stopped early, you have a problem. Well, and I guess then we get into the question is who is he saying should have stopped that? Herb Dean? Uh, because, you know, honestly, it seems like what we've come to expect and what we've come to regard as a good refereeing job, Herb Dean, consistently one of the best, and seemed like he did a pretty good job there, walked that line pretty perfectly, gave Junior Dos Santos every opportunity, and Dos Santos battled back into it. I mean, it's not so different from like uh, the uh, the Travis Brown, Alistair Overeem fight, where you look at that and you think, well, that could have been stopped, but let it go, and the guy came back and, and won it. So I think, though, more you can start to consider, like, hey, where's the guy's corner at? Right. And, yeah, and why are the they, yeah, the doctor or, you know, for his corner to see him come back after the end of the round and stuff like that and say, look, man, this is taking years off your career. This is not good for your life. Uh, and clearly this fight is only going one way here. We can stop it. But you also, it's hard to imagine Junior Dos Santos's corner doing that. It's hard to imagine too many corners in MMA doing that. I remember Big John McCarthy was saying that, uh, you know, in those early UFCs, they didn't want any kind of referee stoppage. They only wanted, you know, submission or just completely knocked out cold. And one of the things that they thought that would allow them to avoid it getting too ugly in there was telling the corners to, to throw the towel. And I can't remember which fight it was, but uh, McCarthy was saying that of one fight where it was getting really ugly, a guy was taking a, a terrible beating and he was yelling at the dude's corner to throw in the towel. And they turned and threw it into the crowd uh, just to, to show him no way. We are not going to do that. And because of like, you know, just some kind of insane, tough guy uh, philosophy. Uh, and it seems like we ought to be able to rely on the coaches to look out for these guys better than they do. 
Yeah, I agree. And it's one of the reasons, I guess, that, that while I understand the popularity of those fights, one of the reasons why it bothers me when people get on guys for having quote unquote boring fights or, or good game plans, because like, uh, in, you know, none of the, none of the critics are going to have to live with that dude's brain later. Uh, so it's fine with me if a guy wants to fight as safe and, and protected as he wants to. But, you know, in, in, in terms of, of, uh, the, these kind of fights that we saw at UFC 166, I think it's sort of a philosophical burden that we have to carry as fight fans because shit, man, it's fighting. That's what it's about. Like yeah. we're, you're not gonna gonna uh, eliminate that from the sport. And and I think that the answer is probably that you just do need to have better oversight from from doctors and uh, administrators and corners that are gonna you know have the balls to throw in the towel. I guess you would say. Well, or that if we acknowledge this, okay, that this is going to be a fact of this sport and that some people are going to have, I mean, I don't think it's a question of whether anybody is going to suffer some long-term consequences as a result of fighting. It's how many people and how bad will the consequences be? Uh, that's the part we don't really know because the, the sport is still pretty young. If we acknowledge that and if we, you know, take upon ourselves, as you say, that psychological philosophical burden, uh, then shouldn't a part of, us realizing that and understanding what the sport is really about and what the risks are, shouldn't a part of that be, you know, the UFC establishing or some, you know, promoters collective establishing some sort of pension fund to help these guys out later on? Because, you know, if you're still replaying Diego Sanchez's Gilbert Melendez fight on, you know, whatever Fox Sports 2 renames itself in five years, uh, that's not necessarily going to do him a whole lot of good if he's still dealing with the effects of it years and years down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think you just need to pay them more at the time because uh, that's what we always talk about in football is guys going out there and, 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 you know, mortgaging their future, if you will, for, for the chance to have these millions of dollars to pass on to their kids and their grandkids. And a lot of these fighters aren't just aren't going to have that. So uh, it's, it's a big question, man. There's a lot of ins and outs to it and, and a lot of answers. And, and I'm sure a lot of disagreement on a lot of the points, but I feel like that is probably a big enough bummer for, uh, for one single round of this show. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we'll be right back with round number three, which starts right now. Lyoto Machida looks for new life in the middleweight division this weekend when he meets Mark Munoz at Ultimate Fight Night 30 from Manchester, England. Uh, ben, obviously we know that this was supposed to be Munoz against Michael Bisping, uh, but Bisping suffered an eye injury. Uh, and We've all seen the pictures of him on the internet with the eye patch. We hope that... that uh, He's out there healing up nicely. Uh, but this also makes for Leota Machida's debut at middleweight. Do you think that dropping to 185 pounds will cure any of the things that we've seen ail Machida in his most recent appearances at light heavyweight? Well, first of all, I, I think, you know, nothing's going to get them pumped in Manchester quite like Mark Munoz versus Leota Machida. That's right. Oh, yeah. No, that you, you kind of feel bummed out for the British fans there because, for one thing, the UFC just keeps tossing them British fighters over and over again. And they're like, see? Hey, it's Michael Bisping. You can't complain about that, right? And then now it's not even that. Now you're going to go all the way down to the for the phones for you arena in Manchester <laughs> and not even get to see Bisping? 
Oh, well, man. You still, got, you still got Ross Pearson against Melvin Gillard in the, in the True. co-main. True. I assume that uh, Norman Park must be British. He's got an E on the end of that <laughs> he does name. does have an E. So he's Good on the guess. card. Yeah, well, okay. This card tells me Alicio Sakara is still fighting for the UFC. So there you go, man. That's that's a positive. Oh, I love me some Legionarius. Well, as to your question about whether moving down to middleweight will help out any of the ales of, of Leota Machida, I still feel like one of the things holding Leota Machida back is not that he's getting overpowered in fights. It's that his style, uh, he kind of fights like we got all day. You know, like he's, he's going to go out there and spend the entire fight waiting for you know, one opening where he's just going to explode into it. And if he's not able to finish there, then, you know, that could be it. Um, so, you know, at times a little too patient for his own good, and that can work against you in the scorecards, especially with judges and MMA who sometimes need to see the, the portrait painted in the broadest of strokes. Yeah. It's a, it's a, not a style that, uh, that dovetails nicely with three five-minute rounds, that's for sure, because, shoot, man, you lose the first two, you're done, unless uh, unless you can go out there and get a stoppage. That's that's one of the things I'm wondering, though. Like, at 185 pounds, do you think Machida is able to uh, bring a little bit more power to bear? Or, or like, uh, you know, in, in, for lack of a better term, is he going to be able to knock fools out at 185? Well, that, that seems like a very real possibility. I would not be surprised if he is able to knock uh a few more fools out, as you put it. Uh, I guess the, the question is, is Mark Munoz going to be one of those fools who gets knocked out? Well, Mark Munoz, I mean, I guess there's no telling how this one's going to play out, but Mark Munoz seems like kind of a tough matchup of styles for Machida because uh, he's a guy who comes in with really good wrestling skills and uh, he don't mess around when he gets you on the ground. That's some of the nastiest ground and pound in the business. And a guy who was not unsuccessful, uh, you know, at 205 pounds before he decided to become a middleweight. And then after becoming a middleweight has, has been really successful when you look at it. Uh, you know, I think when you look at his actual middleweight record, it's kind of surprising how successful he's been because we don't think of Munoz as a guy who's like certainly knocking on the door for a title shot or anything like that, but he's beaten everyone he's fought at 185 pounds except for the guy who is currently the champ in Chris Weidman and then uh, Yushin Okami back in 2010. Other than that, he's beat everybody. So uh, a guy who has proved himself to be uh, really capable at 185 pounds and a guy who is, I think, going to present kind of a problematic style matchup for the Dragon. You know, one of the things I wonder is what happens to Leota Machida? Say he goes out there, fights well, you know, does his Machida thing, but as was the case against Phil Davis, loses a, a close decision. Then, you know, he's got two in a row like that, regardless of whether you think that that's how they should have gone. Uh, doesn't it, especially in the wake of uh, Yushin Okami being let go, doesn't he start to seem one, like one of those guys where he's been with the UFC a while, making good money, not quite Anderson Silva money, we know, uh, even though he, that's what he asked for at one point, but still making good money, former champ, moving around weight classes, and if it still doesn't seem like it's going any better for him, doesn't it start to then feel like, well, you could be next, buddy. You could be the next guy where if you're not going up, you're going straight down all the way out of the UFC. Yeah, and he does feel like he's a guy who's going to be at risk for that, especially since he's probably a guy who, who like you said, gets paid pretty decent money. Um, and that, I think, as we talked about in one of these recent weeks, just might be the new reality 
uh, for guys in the position of a Leoto Machida or the guys in the position of a John Fitch or in the position of a, of a Yushin Okami. Uh, and you know, we, we've seen this sort of like, uh, late, late game, uh, you know, guys who are down the road in their careers. I feel like this is a pretty, uh, common, uh, career path, really. Machida's 35 now. He was the light heavyweight champion. Not very many people think he's going to be the light heavyweight champion again. Uh, and so I feel like this is a sort of a common move to sort of cut weight. Personally, I think it's a, it's a good move for him. I think he'll be a little bit more successful at 185. But at the same time, I feel like if you're going to just talk about stereotypes, the next move is for a dude to lose a fight at his new weight class and decide he's going back to the old weight class. That seems to be the sort of uh denouement, so to speak, for guys who get into uh into this sort of like late career weight class jumping. Then he gets cut, then he gets signed by Bellator and they give whoa, him his whoa, own half ass reality. Fighting, show. I thought. Okay, well or or maybe He seems a little too capable for Bellator. Yeah. That well that could be. Uh then goes into World Series of Fighting and somehow wins a phone that comes with shrinking payments or something. <laughs> Does that sound about right? Uh, but they probably get free phones for fighting at the Phones to Go Center or whatever you phones, said. Phones for you. Phones and it's for the number you. four. So Manchester went ahead and named their arena after burners. <laughs> the phones most often used by drug dealers. I don't know. Is that what Phones for You is? That's I don't know. It sounds like some of... British thing. We got a, a bunch of British listeners. I'm sure they could fill us in. No, we'll probably get. Maybe we'll, they're all about you the know Phones what? for You I bet over they there. will fill us in, too. I bet we'll get some, some emails with, from from people who want to explain to us exactly what phones for you is. And Hey, you know what phones for you? If you're listening, co-main event podcast is uh, amenable to sponsorships yeah. at a reasonable rate. <laughs> That's right. We were, we were willing to make a deal with you with the, the advertising budget that you've got. Well, okay. So you mentioned this though, that this one on Fox sports Two. Right, it's a card yeah. from from England, so Manchester, England, England, yeah. across the Atlantic Sea. Uh, the prelims, like basically half the card, is all online, uh, and then we jump over to the the non HD of uh, Fox Sports Two. Which, again, I will continue to call it Fuel TV, uh, and it seems like we're going right for, again. Can't really complain too much about a free. Uh, event, but we're going right from just talking about how there was an awesome stacked fight card, and then the next weekend is another one where, yeah, we got some fights. We got some fights. We got some guys you know at the top, and then uh, you know some of the guys who are from around those parts. Uh, you know, so, some somebody for the the phones for you crowd to get excited about. Uh, but you know, we're kind of just going right back to the thing. I mean. If that's our new reality, where every once in a while we have this awesome pay per view, and then we got a bunch of you know just it's a weekend, so there's a fight, even if a lot of it feels like kind of filler. You okay with that? You all right with that? Well, you know, I was surprised that this was on Fox Sports too. I didn't know we were still doing that. I thought that we had decided we were going to move them all to Fox Sports One. There, what the, is Fox Sports One doing? Non Saturday, it's so great. Football, uh, yeah, I don't football. know. Somebody needs to jump on the channel guide and and see what's going on. They probably got UNLV against Ball uh, State in <laughs> Louisville. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I think it's all a matter of perception, to be honest with you. Like, I feel like I would be totally cool with a situation since the UFC has so many guys now that if they decided they wanted to go to like a weekly fight show thing, and I don't want to say like Bellator, but like if they wanted to have like a weekly fight night thing where dudes like Norman Park and, uh, Alicio Sakara and, and Phil Harris and John Lineker and Alaya Quinta would all show up and have fights, but people weren't really under an obligation to watch. 
I feel like that would be like a, a perfectly reasonable thing to have like a, you know, kind of like a Friday night fights deal like ESPN does with boxing. Uh, I feel like the, the, the real problem that we run into here is that we're trained to view these shows as events that were, that were, 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 you know, psychologically trained to look forward to these UFC cards like, oh man, next week, Machida versus Munoz. That's something I gotta tune in for. It's just like, well, when you're, when you, that's your expectation, then I feel like you're a little bit disappointed because then you look at the rest of the card, you find out there's, there's a few guys that you've probably heard of before, unless you're an absolute nut for the sport. And you have to figure out where Fox Sports 2 is on your television dial. Yeah, that's a tough one. That is, that is the tough part. So what you're saying is you feel the obligation to watch is what's killing you right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sort of. Well, just like, yeah, I guess that like that the, they that they try to pretend like all of these are big events when like it should just kind of be like yeah we're doing another doing another fight show this week. It's see I feel like guys that's are going to be showing up. That's what it has become. I don't. I feel like either the the UFC has come around to that viewpoint or just can't maintain the false enthusiasm for some of these uh, well enough to to sell it any other way because I do feel like you you got that pretty big build up for UFC 166 uh they're already talking about you know some big tour before UFC 167 oh yeah and by the way we got a few in between then and we'll figure it out it'll it'll be some fights yeah maybe well maybe it's just a me problem maybe, maybe i just is. need to adjust my expectations and maybe i should just be like yeah this one's on Fox Sports 2 i'm not watching it but then you know what? I bet people will get mad at me if yeah. I said that. Anyway, uh, let's do uh, just saying stuff and then we'll, we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, this week I'm just saying I'm kind of excited now. I'm kind of pumped up because I feel like we're about to get a third wave of tough as nails Russian fighters who are going to show up and start kicking everybody's ass. And I couldn't be more into it. I'm getting excited about Adlon Amagov. Nailed it. I'm getting excited about Rustam Habalov. Nailed it. I'm getting excited about Habib Nurmagomedov. Sure. I'm getting excited about Bjorn Rebny's army of nameless Russian psychos. A bunch of them. I, it's been a while, man. It's been a while since we had the Oleg Taktorovs, the Igor Vavchanchnins of the world, fucking motherfuckers up with a stony <laughs> glare from the fucking icy north. I'm excited about it. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, I'm just saying that uh, at UFC 166, Dana White, in talking about the UFC's current roster situation, had some interesting things to say about you know who gets cut, who has to wait a while for a fight, stuff like that. Said Dana White, quote, I keep telling you guys our roster is too full. Guys have to get fights, and every time after a show when we cut a guy, people say, fuck you, Dana White, you're an idiot. <laughs> Shut the fuck up and let us run our business. The roster is too full. Well, Chad, I'm just saying... A, the roster didn't get too full all by itself. If the roster is too full, it's because you signed too many fighters, something you have complete control over, so I'm not sure who's to blame there if it's not Dana White. Uh, and B, no, we will not shut the fuck up. I feel fairly confident saying that about both MMA fans and MMA media. Shutting the fuck up is one thing we just absolutely will not do. However, the good news is it does not affect your ability to run your business. We don't have to shut the fuck up in order to let you run your business. You can continue to run your business just as you have, and we can continue to not to not shut the fuck up even the least little bit. I'm just saying. Just saying. You should still shut the fuck up, though. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We will be back next week to tell you all whether or not I decided to watch this Mark Munoz versus Leota Machida show. I'm probably going to watch it. Spoiler alert. Uh, but as for now, we're done. We're through. We are out. 
Which do you think you could find faster on the TV right now? Fox Sports 2 uh-huh. or Spike TV? Oh, Spike TV. Definitely. Really? Yeah, I mean, I don't even think I get Fox Sports 2. To be honest with you, I don't think I've ever run across it before on my television app. That's because I told you I thought we were doing Fox Sports 1 only.